1: Wow, who would have thought? We're at episode 99. And do I have a massive show for you today? Um, I really enjoyed this. I'm talking to my old mate, ex Special Air Services Regiment officer, and also survivor contestant, Mark Wales. But with Mark now, you get two for the price of one. Got his lovely wife who coincidentally he met on Survivor, Samantha Gash as well, who is a legitimate endurance athlete and uses her exposure for social projects too, which she talks about. You know, last time I had Mark on the show, um, the episode escapes me now. Um, I'll check. Hang on. Let me check. Alrighty, so I checked and it was way back on episode 36 that we had Mark Wales on the show last talking about his business, Kill Capture. And now I've got him on the show with Samantha and we're talking about leading teams remotely, tips from Mark's time in special operations and also from when he was a consultant at McKinsey as well. Um, we talk about how to lead in uncertainty and they offer some points on some science backed techniques for self-support and also health. Sam talks about managing expeditions and how that works and also her involvement and experiences prior to and post um, having her baby. We'll also talk about something called strategic vulnerability, which I think knowing the listeners of this podcast, you're really going to love. So yeah, I think it's a really great episode. They truly are a power couple for the ages. I'm really looking forward to going on Samantha's podcast and talking about my upcoming leadership book. Yeah, and this week's podcast is sponsored by Aussie Strength, and Aussie Strength are doing really well at the moment. They've sold a lot of equipment. They're working with a lot of gyms as they restart and come out of the pandemic, and they're refurbing. So if you want to get on and build your own home gym, check out Aussie Strength. Okay, let's get into the show. Mark Wales and Samantha Gash, welcome to the Warrior You podcast. I think it's going to be episode 99. How are you guys going? Good mate. Sorry we couldn't get the 100. The I know. I was, little,
0: I was a little insulted that we didn't get to have the celebratory 100.
1: I thought what we'd do is I'd end like at 99 and then like just interview myself for 100.
0: <laughs>
1: I don't know. We'll work it out. No, do it. I have the whole, I've written this whole introduction to you guys. My old mate, ex-special air service regiment officer Mark Wales and survivor contestant and his lovely wife. And then I started researching Sam and Mate, I don't even know why you're on the podcast, Mark. Like I've, got, <laughs> I've got so much Very more funny. to talk
2: to. <laughs> just, Behind every great woman, there's um, a boiling man.
1: <laughs> yeah, cool. So, Mark, last time we talked, we, we pretty much talked about all things selection and mindset, combat, and then fashion. How's the business going? How's Kill Capture going?
2: Mate, actually, over the over the lockdown period, we've actually taken on quite a few orders, and Pretty happy. I went with the e-commerce model, but we've taken on a few orders, so I'm about to ramp production up in the U.S. But I'm kind of facing the issue of a lot of places in New York City where a manufacturer are kind of, yeah. kind of half open at the moment. So there's been a few snags, but at least, at least it's still running. Like the orders are coming in, so it's good.
1: Yeah, and between yourself and and Sam, you're really starting to really find your niche in the resilience space which we'll, we'll get to a little bit later in the in the episode but it there must be a lot of resilience involved in in a fashion business and also uh, knowing the guy you are you, you're not doing things by halves and you're not outsourcing stuff you're doing everything oh mate the the whole the whole space is hard to take on because
2: often you get margin compression but if you build a good brand and people are Interested in it, then you really you can actually make traction. It doesn't have to span a mass market. You can just have a niche and go deep on that, and and really look after them, and you can make a real business out of that. So that's kind of what I'm aiming at. And luckily, the instincts I had earlier proven to be true. So I kept the name despite a lot of opposition, and I've kept the focus on quality despite a lot of push to to try and increase margin. So it's a long game, but yeah, it's
1: good. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, I know nothing about this industry. but I I do have Warrior U T shirts and <laughs> I mean, it, it, credible, wasn't, credible. It, it wasn't meant to be a joke but um what what I wanted to say was that I'd love them to be made in Australia but the fact is that the cost of labour over here actually ends up being more expensive for me to get a suboptimal product made in Australia as opposed to getting it made in the USA where the quality's better the the printing. They're they're more sort of accessible. Oh, how do I put it? They they let me print on more areas of the t-shirt, which they wouldn't in Australia. And they come pre-sealed up in plastic. And by the time by the time I've brought them in from America, gone through UPS, paid the tax, I actually make a couple of dollars extra than I would have made in Australia. Surely you guys have seen that as well, with regards to how much labour costs in Australia for little things like that.
2: Mate, it's phenomenal, and it's we're starting to realise now how, just how much of a manufacturing base we've lost over the decades. And to be honest, that we probably need to claw back. So I think you're going to see pretty big changes over the next kind of decade about how we do that in Australia. But the US has got so much competition that you can you're right, you can get all that stuff done. The level of service and quality is often better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you must must see a lot of that, and also you're able to not play people off against each other but I would assume with those working visas that, the, that America has they're right you know if you do a day's work you get a day's pay over over here there seems to be so much around everyone wanting to be paid the absolute top dollar for making lattes or flipping burgers or doing t-shirts you know
2: yeah I think that it's a good thing about the US and it's a bad thing too when you're when I was in New York there are literally a thousand people queuing up waiting to to take your job off you and so that makes like that, everyone is striving to do well and everyone wants these jobs. So it does make a level of competition kind of another level over there. You can't survive unless you're very, very good in your business. And I think that level of competition isn't um, replicated in Australia. So it is, they're just different markets and you get different results out of both.
0: Yeah.
1: And Sam, were you the brains behind the um, the axe?
0: Huh. Buying the what? <laughs>
1: the axe. She doesn't she doesn't know what it is. Oh, right. So it wasn't Sam. I thought maybe she does she designed that and now all the women across Australia are buying hatchets <laughs> with Mate, kilt. there's actually a guy in, in the US called Christian
2: Oswald, who you might know, ex Australian military, and he has joined up with me as the a partner in the US. So he is helping run all the manufacturing and
1: design over there. Yeah, and those watches are insane. Yeah mate they are good what were you thinking yeah we well that that partnership
2: with brm came up and it was just too good to pass up so we got a few prototypes made and i mean they're they're top dollar but they're very very good
1: hey sam i want to talk to you about a few things but in particular just recently you completed a whole lot of crazy runs do you want to just tell me or tell the audience a little bit about what you did
0: yeah i almost feel like a part of i guess my identity was With running and expeditions, like there's a big segment of it that was like pre mum. And I feel like since having Harry, our two year old, and I think I first met you when I was like wildly pregnant, evolving like how I, how I, who I am in that run space and the expedition space. But pre Harry life, I would do a lot of long distance expeditions or extreme races, either on foot or through adventure racing. And the more, Purposeful work that I did in that space is when I connected those long um, expeditions to social impact campaigns. Mm. So in the very very early days, it was about identifying who I was physically and mentally from someone who never really ran and was kind of like a bookworm, didn't even know what sports was, and so I did this thing called the Four Deserts Grand Slam, which which a lot of people try and confuse with like Four Deserts Grand Slam. <laughs> which I think would be a little bit more pleasurable for most people. But for me, I actually loved these extreme races that were being hosted in the hottest, coldest, driest, and windiest deserts on Earth. Um, So like Chile, China, Egypt, and Antarctica. And they were semi-self-supported, meaning you had to carry all your supplies that you needed except for your tent, and you were given like additional access to food along the route mm. and it's like a point a to point b and you would sleep at night time and your time accrued from how long it would take you to do the distance so that was really my first foray into anything on the endurance world and I kind of to be to admit to myself it was a bucket list item mm. I was like okay I'm going to do this and then I'm going to go and work in corporate law and really it opened my eyes to what life could be like when I didn't know what things or when I couldn't control all the odds Mm. And that's kind of, I've always felt that I've been more addicted to that kind of state of being versus the running itself.
1: And you're, you were good. You're legitimate, legitimately a good runner or did that come in? I, I, did that I wouldn't come? say
0: I was a legitimate, legitimately good runner at the beginning. I am, I became better as I went on in that one year. Like sometimes when you have a repeated exposure, to hardship, and you're so stubborn that you're, and you have a degree of naivety. Mm. It's it's like this beautiful balance. Uh, and I've always been someone that's had like pretty insane realistic optimism that I can identify <laughs> a challenge, but then I can quickly spin it around and see the benefit of it. Yeah. So I've always been someone that goes, "Yes, I'm hurting right now. Is discomfort? I can associate it to a pain that I'm a, a sensation that I'm not familiar with, but I chose to be here, and so therefore find a way to appreciate it and not." Someone who hates it in the moment and then, upon reflection, enjoys it. So, I kind of did that in my first couple of years of ultra racing, and then it got to a point where I was like, "Okay, I know I can run long, I can run it in a hot environment, I can do all these things, but why am I doing it?" So, from really 2012 to to now, I definitely am more wired to use that exploration of adventure and distance and mindset and vulnerability and go why am I doing it? And, and I'm very interested in like looking at the barriers to why children are unable to access a, a quality education. And I guess my most significant project that I've done was a three and a half thousand kilometer run from the West to the East of India, oh. looking at that very issue. And every couple of days along the route, I would go into communities that will vision support across the country. And like, I'd go to the slums, I would go to schools, I'd go to social enterprise projects and initiatives, and I'd share those stories in real time.
1: Is it the the issues getting you through the run or is it a a sort of deep-seated drive that you have or is it a combination of both?
0: Question. Um, I think it's a combination. I think at the beginning, I think it's hard to be very purpose-driven like for an objective beyond yourself before you actually know who you are. So at the beginning, it was like how mentally and physically strong I am when I don't know what the outcome's going to be. Like that was enough of a motivator to explore that space. Mm. And once I kind of got to that level, I was like, okay, well, what can this, I've always been someone that's been interested in social impact. I always thought I'd work for international organizations such as the UN. uh, And then I ended up working in corporate law, but I I started to think, well, um, maybe running can be used as a vehicle for social change if I'm willing to share that story and I'm willing to get up close to the people I'm trying to work in collaboration with. And so it's it's everything. But what I have learned is accountability and connection to your purpose is critical. So when I ran across India, it was a brutal run. If I wasn't doing it for the social impact side of it, and if I hadn't committed two years of my life in the lead up to it to that objective, I don't think I would have gotten past 14 days because it was not one day went to plan. Even after so much planning, I was running on the burning heat, asphalt, it was 45 degrees, 100% humidity. Uh, and like my body was breaking and there was definitely times when I was like, I want to be here. I, I don't not want to be doing what I'm doing, but I'm not quite sure if the human body is designed to be doing this. Yeah,
1: that's amazing. Well, Mark, I'm going to put you on the spot. Knowing what you know about SAS selection and knowing what you know about Sam, would she pass?
2: Uh, she would need a wheelbarrow for a pack, but <laughs> she would pass if we could do that.
1: Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: I, I, for my size, I think I can carry a pretty large pack. Yeah, I can't. (laughs) Um, But when the reason is strong enough. Otherwise, like anybody, I can be a lightweight. I can be emotionally and mentally vulnerable and well beneath my potential if I'm not driven to the objective of it. So I just think we need to find what we're going to be wired and connected to in order to bring that potential out in us.
1: Yeah. I fully get what Mark's saying though, because I think when I did selection as a 20 year old, I would have weighed about the same as you, Sam. And <laughs> I'm not even joking. So, and so I can completely, when you pick up a 50 kilo pack mm-hmm. and you weigh 54 or 55 kilo, it's all downhill from there. There's no amount, I mean, there's no amount was, of resilience that can get you through it. Yeah,
0: Even more context, like I'm 46 kilos and oh, I'm God. four foot 11.5 inches. <laughs> That's right.
1: You are small. Can run. So, interestingly, and I want to get to survivor in a minute because I'm interested in your thoughts about that. But before we do, for both of you, motivation or consistency is which one's more important? Do you think to be successful on something like an ultra event?
0: I mean, I think what's more important in the lead up is certainly consistency. Consistency in training. Consistency in preparation. Uh, consistency in maintaining your emotional levels. I actually think motivation wanes pretty freaking quickly yes, uh, once is. you get pushed to the brink. Mm. But I don't know if consistency is enough. Like I, I think there might be a third thing that maybe you're missing of purpose or accountability. I, I don't think consistency on its own is enough.
1: Yeah. You said before connection to your purpose and I can see anything that I've ever failed, I didn't have a good connection to to why I was doing it. I was just doing it for shits and giggles. But the things that I was really good at, there was a strong connection that I was able to go back to and and really gravitate around that connection to that purpose. I assume, Mark, that was the same for you on SASR selection, that there there was a connection to that purpose and an end state that you just knew you had to achieve that
2: yeah I think for me, the signal was if you if it's an idea you can't seem to shake that then you have to kind of listen to it it's It's something that's drawing you in um I mean, you have to pay attention to the things that really excite you, and I had that with selection. I could kind of see the end state, even though I didn't know exactly what it would look like mm. I, was, I was thinking that that's going to be such a good thing to achieve, and because of that that becomes your motivation and your consistency. Like you're willing to get up and do the hard work because you've got that end state in mind and you're excited about it. To me, that was, what, that was kind of what got me, got me up and, and kept me going when it was bloody awful as it, as it gets um, every time.
1: And so with, with Survivor, Sam, did you look at that as an expedition? And Mark, I assume you looked at that the way we would look at a mission. So both of you setting up for those two areas of your life that you have an intimate knowledge of? So one, an expedition, the other a mission for something like Survivor?
0: Partially. I, I also saw another part of it was play, which sounds a bit weird. I had just gotten off running across India and I had worked so unbelievably hard. And to be honest, like Survivor seemed from the outside as like a little bit trivial and lighthearted. And it was actually, that's kind of what I wanted. Mm. I wanted to kind of play around with the lighter side of who I was, which clearly wasn't the case when i got there it actually was far harder than i expected but that was probably what drew me to it but when i was preparing for it and there were degrees of expedition planning in terms of like my research that were equipping me to get to that kind of start line
1: about mm. yourself mark Mate, I, I would
2: i thought of it less as a mission i thought it was going to be a bit of a brawl actually i was like this is going to be an, an, an all-in there's going to be blood in the water there's going to be people going everywhere but i thought it would be really good fun and i was right it was something completely different i would never done anything with tv you know what it's like with us we don't we try not to go near the spotlight so for me it was a kind of burning of the boats once i did that i knew i was never going back and i was okay with that and i was trying to get out of the life i'd built for myself in the corporate sector which to be honest i didn't find that fulfilling I wasn't as motivated by it as I was um, by doing the things I kind of believed in, like kill capture or being the military. So it was for me; it was a step. It was it was a good step into something I knew I would have to continue down the path a bit longer.
1: Yeah, so it's was almost great, a,
2: though. It was good fun.
1: Almost a baptism of fire of social <laughs> media and marketing for a guy who doesn't even have a photo of him. He's had three photos of himself from Afghanistan. Uh,
0: <laughs> but I mean for his naivete I think he fared incredibly well in exposing himself to to that world yeah um and it also uh, I think it fared well for him being a tall strapping good la good looking single unit from Perth and I think all those things helped <laughs> you in that space it seems, it seems <laughs> to have
1: worked out all right at the then. end <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was um it was really I mean I'm I wasn't I wasn't really a Survivor fan, to be fair, prior to Mark going on there. I sort of knew about it, but I wasn't blue to the TV. But I remember, because because obviously the episodes were coming out after you guys had finished it, and I remember texting Mark a couple of times going, what the hell happened there? Like, <laughs> you know, like I couldn't believe that. But um, it was great watching you two form a, a friendship and, a, and then a bond and then more than that on the show as well. I know a lot of people in Australia think that was a, a really great bit of TV. Probably should have won Logies yeah. for that.
0: <laughs> Far out. Yeah,
1: quality, It's quality no. and oh.
2: reality TV. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: mean, any shred of credibility I had mustered for myself in the decade beforehand got completely torn to pieces.
1: <laughs> <No, no improvement. laughs> we've, all, we've all we've all fallen for Mark. You're okay. So. Let's talk a little bit about some of the business stuff that that you guys do and where you operate and sort of work around similar sort of space. So I I do understand the intricacies of of what you you do. And in particular, you guys focus on resilience, which I don't think there's a better power couple out there to talk about resilience, to be fair, in Australia, to be sure. And I thought maybe we'd start with, and I, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about, especially since the pandemic, leading teams remotely has become a really sort of poignant topic. And and what are your thoughts on, on that?
2: Yeah, some of the things I've spoken about with leading teams relates to kind of mission command and how we, we used to do it in the army. So making sure you've got a really clearly defined objective that the whole team understands and then you have a process for executing and you give teams the freedom to execute within those parameters. That's like at its most basic, that's what it takes to lead a team remotely. You've really got to invest a lot of trust in them and vice versa, they have to reciprocate with, A lot of feedback and updates back to you as a leader so the hardest thing is people just aren't there to see it all unfold and they've just got to trust in people but at the same time set those clear parameters that people can can run within
0: and i also think for a lot of people they've never experienced a environment where there is so um there's a lot less certainty and they don't know what's going to happen six months down the track and they also don't know what's going to happen next week and Mm. i for those who maybe are adventurers or for those who are in the military, I think we take for granted that for most people, that's their domain. And so the way I've tried to describe this situation to people is like it's an adventure, which is a journey with an unknown outcome and and how to kind of liberate yourself from being required to know every single step of the way. And, and as Mark said before, a lot of the times, if you can purely have trust in your team and in what the mission that you're trying to achieve You can let go of a degree of that certainty and also have trust in yourself that you will survive in this space. Mm.
1: Are you guys surprised that leadership doesn't have front and center of a lot of organizations when when you go in there? Are you you surprised at how little some companies really invest in it?
2: I remember being at McKinsey and asking the team leaders what sort of training they got. and I was surprised at how little formal leadership training they got. It was all pretty much on the job Mm. stuff. And because of that, you'd see him make really basic errors that you make as a junior leader. You try and do the job that's kind of one step below you rather than stepping upwards, bringing up space for your team, and then you tackling kind of the future operations rather than getting too immersed in the current stuff. So that was a, I'm surprised, like that was one of the top companies in the world in management consulting, and they had a very basic leadership program for their people. So the army is on the other end of that spectrum. We really invest heavily in it, probably too much, I think. And um, I think the the sweet spot is somewhere in between.
1: Yeah, for my mind, the Army's product is actually leadership, where some of the other companies, like Toyota is cars, or like Agile would be part of their leadership model, more their working workflow model. But yeah, so the army definitely or the Defense Force, their product is leadership. So it's it's interesting for me going into businesses and seeing that they don't spend much attention. On leading people, or or they promote people who are technically really proficient, and then wonder why they can't lead.
0: But to respond, I mean, I actually think that half the time the problem is there's not a great enough diversity within the leadership team, and mm. then in the second tier leadership, because obviously technical proficiency is important. But if that's the person who's going to be high in command in a certain organisation, the person who's there to IC needs to be someone who has an co- entirely different set of skill sets to complement that person. And I think sometimes people hire like, as opposed to going, okay, where are potential my deficiencies and and how can I bring someone in that complements that space?
1: Mm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a really good point, actually. Yeah. And what about, you know, we talk about leading teams and and I use the term and feel free to feel free to take this guys. I use the term quite often, benevolent,
2: <laughs> ben,
1: benevolent manipulation, and and that is manipulating people to get the best outcome out of them, but you're doing it benevolently and you're also manipulating yourself to give that person the best version of you in that moment. And I sort of wonder, leading yourself through these downturns or leading yourself through setbacks and crisis, I know that you've worked in this space, Sam, of being able to push people to be to be able to lead themselves through your experiences, through having to show resilience and and basically just change your mental outlook.
0: I call, I have a term for it too, which Mark always laughs at. I call it strategic vulnerability. Oh, I like um, it. because Obviously, yeah. Because as corporate as we talk about things, humans who are leaders are emotional by default. That's probably the primary sense of being. Our emotions drive us. And I think in times of chaos and uncertainty, connection with people is critical in order for people to go to the edge of the world with you. And so how do you bring out the best in other people by sometimes displaying a more deeper side of who you are? So yeah, I totally get what you're saying with, with kind of your re- reference to it.
1: Yeah, strategic vulnerability. It has a great ring to it. And I, and I can see certain CEOs, especially that try and completely shield their, their emotional um, output for their subordinates. And yet they're probably doing themselves a disservice.
2: Yeah, it's it's a huge disservice. And we used to see that, I used to see that leads that kind of just had that permanent mask on. And I think a really good leader knows how to morph between the two, because there are times when you really just got to lock everything down and go. And there are times when you really need to kind of connect with everyone at an empathetic level. And And the best is know how to balance those two and depending on what the situation is.
1: Were you able to do that, Mark? Do you think as a as an officer, as a troop commander and and as an exo, were you able to to go between the two or did that take a while for you to learn that?
2: Yeah, although I kind of wish yeah, I think it took me a while. It took it took a bit of maturing. I think you have to outgrow some of the training. Young person, where you believe a leader in the military is really what soldiers need in war. I found was a deep level of human connection and understanding in the teams because there's emotions at play. There's love. There's all these emotions that I hadn't kind of factored in because you get exposed to a bit in training. It's even more pronounced in warfare. So as I matured, I felt like I got better at that. But it took kind of years to not not be self conscious or not worry about what people were going to think if I was a bit more open.
1: Yeah, and if you went back now to Afghanistan as a troop commander, how do you do? You feel that you'd be so much more effective with with that understanding
2: as a more mature person uh, and as a father as well. I think you just have the ability to and empathize a little bit more. You can really get the best out of people because they feel like they're being looked out for. I feel
1: like um, if I could go back, I'd probably be more effective in that regard. You only know what you know at the time, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: I'm interested. So you've got some some pointers on on science back techniques supporting you know, supporting yourself and, and mental health.
2: Yeah, I try and I basically during my recovery after my last tour of Afghanistan, I went and saw a neuroscientist because I had some unusual symptoms like couldn't concentrate properly, high levels of fatigue, the types of things you associate with burnout and um depression. And he basically he basically said, I want you to follow these this range of techniques, which is actually really straightforward. And it revolved around improving your diet some concentrated breathing exercises, improving your sleep and doing a bit more exercise. They were kind of some of the, the more basic ones, but it was all backed by a lot of research around what that does to dampen the symptoms of depression or burnout. And what I found later was the same stress that we experience on the battlefield is the same physiological response you get from burnout in the corporate sector. It's just without some of the, the I guess, horrific circumstances you can get in war, but they still have a similar effect. So that's where the kind of crossover is now in the work that I do with companies. I basically say to them, hey, if you do the basics well, you can not only recover, but you can really perform at a high level.
1: Yeah. And I, and the, the actual work ethic and, the, and the, the amount of work that we were doing over nearly a decade, I don't think people give that credit. It doesn't necessarily need to be post-traumatic stress from something violent, although you went through the worst of it. But it's actually... Just the, just the constant working day in, day out, every day.
2: Constant high levels of stress. That, mm. that, the hormonal changes that makes in your body and what that does to your mind, it kind of shuts down your slow thinking mind, to your, your prefrontal cortex and all your executive thinking and reasoning and logic. All that kind of takes a hit while you're using your fast brain, your more ancient fight or flight mechanisms to, to process and survive throughout all these deployments. So- after a protracted period, that does a lot of damage to you. And there's a lot, of, a lot of research pointing to that now. And burnout is no different. It's just this insidious chronic illness that just creeps up on you.
1: Yeah. And I, went, I went away on the weekend with the Army Reserves uh, running a recruit course. And I had to sit on my pack and just watch people doing stuff for 45 minutes to an hour. And I remember <laughs> thinking to myself, God, why don't I, I need a computer. Yeah, there was no phone comms. I need a computer. I need this. I need that. And it took ages for my brain to slow down, to just go, just sit here and drink a coffee, mate.
2: <laughs> I had, I had a, a really highly qualified psych say that too. He's like, find the space to do things that really slow your mind down. Cause that's where a lot of your planning and your inspiration and your forward thinking will come from. Just mm. is, is taking a slow moment. It's really, it's really good advice. We all know it. We just don't do it enough. Yeah.
1: And do you do that with the the business guys? Do the two of you go and sit on a beach somewhere and just look out over the ocean and communicate about what you want to do in in the future and achieve? Or is it done more in isolation away from each other?
0: So in terms of the programs that we do with different organizations, it it varies. We'll, We'll do, you know, standalone keynotes. But I think what this time, and we've done workshops as well. And we've also done some experiential style programming where people will Trek with us, and we'll talk about this stuff in real life. And mm. often, people in teams, in a corporate sense, haven't been tested with each other in an environment what they're, that they're not familiar with, mm. uh, and the relationships they build with each other can actually really serve well when they go back to the workplace. But I, I think through COVID, and what we've kind of really discussed is we're not really wanting to do just that standalone work with people anymore. We really want to kind of provide like a bundling of offerings to make the information stick mm. to stay longer for not to just be words that are potentially inspiring because mm. of our personal experiences mm. but to take it relevant uh, and tangible for them
1: so that so that they yeah I, I see what you say there because it's it's one thing to stand up in front of some really great photos and say mm. hey this is how awesome I was and this is how you could be awesome too but it's another thing for them to experience that that sort of awesomeness it's, you know actually well, experience <laughs> an, an aha moment
0: it's almost one of the worst things that I can walk away from it. The from a presentation uh, is when someone just goes to me, "Oh, you're so inspiring," and I could never do what you do. Mm. I actually feel like I failed at my job if I do that because, firstly, I I would much rather say someone go, "You're what you just gave me was incredibly relatable," and even though I don't give a shit about running, I feel like I could take myself to a space that I have never been before and do what is my ultra marathon. Yeah, and that's far more important for me.
1: I was listening to Chris Hadfield, the astronaut talking the other day and, and he was talking about how, how he's trying to inspire people to just do things in teams more yeah. and one of the interesting things he says is we're basically the same as the as the space station except on a massive scale but we're all here in space on this on this rock and we should all be working together because there's nowhere else to go it's the same as being up in up inside the space station you're there together you've got to make it work um, I thought that was pretty inspiring.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, and you can do so much more, especially if you have a team that's kind of fairly flat and informally organized and shares ideas mm. often. They're like the most high-performing teams. And you can get kind of average quality people that and put them in a team as a kind of hard-minded and they'll outperform everyone else. They outperform the, the team of geniuses and so on. Mm. A pretty good study by Google centered around that and they were, they were surprised at how much better these teams perform
1: just because they're better at communicating mm. and is it does that then create a high performing culture so is, is a high performing culture the result of the high performing leaders or is there something is there some other there's some other secret to a high performing culture there's there's the an agree set of
2: values that people stick mm. to so yeah. The idea being that you can all share ideas. It's there's a high degree of psychological safety. So if you do share ideas, you're not going to be shouted down by the team or embarrassed. And that willingness to kind of be open and share often and have frequent uh, kind of collisions, they call it. So frequent interactions. That's kind of where really high performing teams take off. They they share their ideas without the kind of centralized overhead structure. It's all done at the coalface face in teams in a flat structure, and, and they concentrate on the problem-solving a lot more than they do the the
1: egos of individuals or anything like that fight the problem not the person Mm, yeah yeah look i love what you're what you're saying there and particularly around the whole cultural piece being linked to the values i I wonder if you've ever gone into an organization and and the two of you looked at it and gone geez their values are just wrong and that's a hard conversation i don't think wrong but i've certainly seen ones where
2: you like they have a slightly different there, there is a slightly different feel to it like i've done keynotes where no one said a word no one laughed no one asked a question after and i was like is that it could have been just me but it really actually the companies are quite buttoned up in some ways so that's kind of so, a couple of times that surprised me but yeah
0: and some people don't talk in that language yeah. Yeah. I think it's easy for yeah. us who are kind of going in the high-performance space to think that people speak in terms of values and mission and purpose and leadership. Some people are just like day-to-day doing their job and are sometimes working in silo to other people and completely in isolation to what is the overall picture. Yeah, And so I guess a part of what you hope to do through sharing your experiences, which is outside of the world that they know, it starts to excite some kind of, um, Dry for them to create they, those connections to themselves. And all it takes is a couple of people in an organization to go, oh, why aren't we sharing what we care about? Why aren't we working together for things to start to s- slowly shift?
1: Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely turning into a leadership masterclass, Sam. That's great. But before we delve too much further into leadership, I have to ask. <laughs> Mark, on an, on an expedition, is he worthwhile taking Sam or not?
0: Oh, oh my god! Tell me about uh, tell me about the expedition you guys I feel did like together. It's, it's just my moment to really let rip. Okay, I feel like he, one of he would have eaten
1: my, all your food. I'm sure.
0: <laughs> oh no, Mark doesn't eat as much as you think. Everyone always says that. I probably eat a very similar amount. I have made a couple of significant mistakes in my expeditions and I guess, which is why I can now talk about it. I think you sometimes really learn from your own failures. And the first thing is I can't be the team leader when I'm in expedition mode. So when I'm actually out doing the run, there has to be someone on an organizational level who's leading the team. And I'm, I'm a cog in that in particular, because it's not just ever the expedition of the run, it's also the social impact and the community work. And so there's a lot of things happening. And I have typically not, I've either not selected the right person or I have not empowered them correctly to do that job well enough. And having been now in a relationship with someone in not just military, but like the best of the best military with the SAS, the way that Mark project manages kind of every component of my life and, and our lives together and Harry's life tells me that that would be a great service for what I want to do. So that aside, I just don't know if he could hack the harsh environment that I so easily mm. adapt to. No, I'm just kidding. He he would be good. I'm trying. I'm trying to like not make his head any bigger than it is. But I I know that when I do my next expedition, it's important for me to get, bring him into it.
1: But he's done a little. And, he's done a little expedition with you though, hasn't he? He's done a little like three or four. <laughs> days. Oh, you're about to see the the full
2: video evidence of it. I think the and what we're talking about is Eco Challenge, which mm-hmm. was a team cool. event run out of Fiji late last year and mm. we're in a team of four and it was a 10-day race it was run 24 7 and it was filmed by the same crew that filmed survivor and um big rules was was a host and it's going to be released not too long uh, on amazon so if our team's in there you'll you'll see us there were 60 plus teams and I, um and
0: yeah i think that was an interesting thing because mark and i met on survivor very quickly which is not the world in which we had both previously been in. So we met each other in a very different place Mm. of our lives. And then we quickly had a family and it was almost like we hadn't been exposed to the people that we were beforehand. So Mark didn't really know me as this runner who does all this stuff. And I didn't obviously know as much about Mark's military time as well. And I think Eco Challenge was this almost baptism of fire where we got to see each other's strengths and also possibly some of our vulnerabilities and it was really interesting to navigate that whilst raising a young child at the time and being in a team together and it had been four years since Mark had been in the military so he would lived a cushy life in terms of external environment since then and I was just rediscovering my body after having a child
1: mm. yeah I can't wait to see it I reckon you guys are be- uh mate there was one <gasps> uh, there was one point I was in full
2: like golem mode I was walking kind of bent over in half. <laughs> yeah. On, on selection, you see someone who's like nearly cactus. That's kind of how I was. You're in that spiral where uh, you're leaning forward and you pack sideways. And, oh, well, I was just pushing.
0: Oh, but that's the coolest thing about team events. And you guys know this from what you've done with selection is you get the right team together and individually you can surpass what your own limits are. And mm. so, yes, there were moments when Mark was really struggling to walk at pace up a hill and, I might've been pushing him up the backside to go. (laughs) Fortunately for him, I'm so small, the camera wouldn't have seen me from the front. But then there's other moments where the terrain is so technical that my little legs couldn't jump from like rock to rock. And I had to be like physically assisted every step of the way by one of my teammates. And I was on all fours to try and get four points of contact onto a rock. So I didn't break my legs. So like, we all had our breaking and defining leadership moments. And I actually think that's the best team because when you can shift up the leadership amongst different people in a small core, t- core team.
1: Yeah. And it must give you some great material to be able to stand in front of the corporate world and say, Hey, listen, this is what it looks like when leadership's under pressure.
0: Oh, we were also where, well, yes, but we were also so delirious because we barely slept that it almost feels like a dream. Yeah. Like Wow our cortisol, our adrenals, everything was almost so shot. I mean, our team operated very well and particularly having a couple in that team, like it's not always highly advised to have a partner in a team of four being pushed to the brink. But I think we, <laughs> we got the right team. And I think my greatest takeaways from Mark's experiences is not only is he good in the planning phase, but his gut instinct is typically very good. And how'd you Probably guys go? A bit, a bit more attuned than mine.
1: Are you allowed to tell me how you went?
0: Where'd you finish? No, I can't tell. We oh. signed an NDA. Yeah, we
2: did too. Oh, wow, bud. Actually, we had a couple of team values which we we stuck to that ended up being really good. So one was brutal honesty. Mm. So we just told each other with brutal honesty whether we were doing well or bad, and that was a great thing to have in the team. Mm. And the other one was don't get get rattled. So no matter how bad a state we're in, we're like, just don't get rattled, don't lose your kind of marbles and your forward thinking because that is what gets you out of trouble just about every time.
0: We also created a list in advance of what would be our reasons that the team would, why an individual of the team would quit. And we basically said, I mean, we even went as far as going, how could we workshop a broken leg? Like how could we get someone to keep moving forward? We said diarrhea, like excessive diarrhea was not good enough an excuse, we could solve that. We really kind of identified what would be the reasons that would stop our team moving forward as a four.
1: Sounds like action's on. Oh, it sounds a lot
2: like a ball criteria in actions on. But it, was, it was pretty severe. Well, basically, unless you have a, your a lower limbs are broken, we're going to keep going.
0: So in- I did laugh that we said our, our closeness as a team had to be so tight that we would be comfortable wiping each other's bums if required. <laughs> that's
1: that's so actually cool. just an SAS fetish. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, so th-
1: th- that makes me think, though, that, Interestingly, and and with with regards to your leadership work, having those actions on what what that, and I'm drawing back on the conversation I had with Dave Grossman a few episodes ago, where he was saying if you can visualise worst case, then you are less susceptible to decision shock, or you're less susceptible to the shock of the action because you've already been through it in your mind's eye.
2: Yeah, this at McKinsey they do a pre-mortem before a study and go, you know what destroys this study what makes it fail and they cook up a few scenarios and really it's the it's really wargaming so you're wargaming those scenarios and you're considering how you might modify the plan and the military does this all day we do it formally Mm. some businesses do it informally but Mm. it's when people get caught out and coronavirus is a perfect example Mm. Um, if you had wargamed an economic Shock or an economic collapse. There's certain things you might have done in your business which could be very different. So, um,
0: and uh, it's also surprising that some organisations hadn't contemplated a situation where all their staff would have to work remotely.
1: Wow. Yeah. I mean,
0: mean, there's Mm. certain things that I think if I think of it about what we do to prepare for an adventure race, such as we went out to the hinterlands and did a 24-hour race. We and in one time it proved that the team was not good enough, and we had to completely recreate the team. And so if you think about it in a corporate context, you have to take yourself to the worst case scenario to see how people respond. And the first time it may not look pretty. And then the question is, can we develop individuals um, enough to get them to respond better the second time or the third time? Or is this team just completely defunct and not strong enough and do we need to rebuild?
1: Yeah, some honest questions there to be fair. Yeah. And are you guys training now? Do you still train every day, Sam and Mark?
0: Yeah. I do. Um, and actually both of us do. I'm probably a bit more extreme. I've got a couple of expeditions. I was meant to be running across the US right now, which mm. for so many reasons was clearly not the right thing to be doing. No. But yeah, I'm doing a Pro in the Pinta coming up in a couple of months and then also a project later on in the year as well. And for me, I just feel, I, you know, I've talked a lot about like what it felt like as an athlete having a child and I there were so many points along the eco challenge journey I was like yeah I'm back to full strength and now I'm like actually I feel stronger now two and a bit years down the track but I don't ever feel the same but it doesn't mean I can't feel as strong as I previously did so yeah I, I feel like I'm coming into my own as an athlete and an adventurer again now.
1: And what's on the cards for the for the two of you coming up for say the rest of twenty twenty? Although I'm thinking about putting the Christmas tree up, I'm just calling it a year but anyway. <laughs> twenty twenty, very
2: very bad. Would not recommend this year. Mm. It's, been a, it's been a rough one. So the rest of the year, Sam's you you start. Sorry.
0: Oh, <laughs> what a gentleman! I think the first thing is when so much of our how we thought this year would play out could no longer be a reality. Mm. We kind of didn't rush to create like the blueprint for 2020. We just kind of submitted to the situation and we kind of got focused on the basics. And the basics for us was family, dedicating time to things that we've always used time as an excuse that having not done it. So working on the house, building a veggie patch, getting chickens, taking Harry out of daycare, just like really grounding in like home and family life. And then it really was about creating projects that we could do because we were at home that really connected to us. So for me, it was um, developing a podcast, which has been, I had no, I've had i always wanted to do it and I had a lot of excuses to not do it. And just like you, it, it takes time to work out, one, do I like this? Two, am I good enough to, to sustain it? Uh, and three, like who are the type of people, stories that I want to create space to share? And I kind of feel like 13 episodes deep, I'm like really building up my voice in this space. And normally I'm the person interviewed and I'm actually loving being the listener yeah. and a completely new skill set. And I kind of feel like a part of my purpose now is like, I've, I've spent 10 years building up quite a, a platform, which is obviously about social impact, but also was very driven on the individual. And I feel like there's going to be this fundamental shift away from the individual and moving towards the collective. And like, is what you do beneficial to society as a whole? And mm. that's where I am excited for my kind of podcast and even my future expeditions to move into.
1: Yeah, I love it. If you do get the time, Sam, and I'm not giving myself a plug, if, if you do get the time, have a listen to the episode I did with Merrick Watts because he, yep. he goes right into the intricacies of podcasting and there's so mm-hmm. much knowledge that that guy has. It's just insane. After, yeah, definitely. Yeah, after nearly 30 years in the radio industry. I mean, it's a great, he, he taught me so much yeah I okay
0: i'll totally check it out i've listened to a bunch of yours i thought you were about to volunteer yourself to be a guest on my podcast
1: oh i'd love that i'd <laughs> love to talk about i'd love to talk about myself yeah i'm not sure i think most people have heard my views on things
0: you, you think that and you're actually wrong mm. i think we get so caught up in like our world and that all our friends know us and even like the next layer of networking but you probably—it's like one percent of the of Australia would probably still know your story. Mm. So we always need to learn how to connect what we care about to different people.
1: Mm. Oh well, I can come on and talk about my new leadership book, which I'm quite proud of. After four uh, years, congrats! Yeah, oh, well, yeah. well done on the um. Was McChrystal did a blurb? Right,
2: that's that's a great uh, catch. Yeah,
1: yeah, he was really he was really good, and we had a great conversation through through the internet about leadership and in particular place and his theory on on place and how that works with leadership, which was quite profound really. And Paul Paul Roos was a surprise for me because he read the book. And he he's such an interesting guy, Paul. And he's he understands more about leadership than most people will ever learn that have read all the books. And his yeah, journey with the Sydney Swans he is. And his journey with the Sydney Swans, he um yeah, I can definitely see the two of you, myself, and and Paul Ruse, working on something together in the future because I think we all come at this from a slightly different angle, but the same sort of definition of done. Mm.
2: Mate, there's an eco challenge team just uh, waiting in the well, midst. For I
1: was that. I was thinking about putting together a team with uh, Dan McPherson. Myself and a couple of other hard hitters, and just heckling you guys the whole way. Like, that would be I, our premise. I McPherson mean, to would be too busy looking at himself. No, maybe... I'd
0: laugh <laughs> at you say that. I, I would put a wager that Dan would preference being in a team with me over you any day of the week.
1: I, I've got to say, I've gone running with Dan. So, and so he he already knows a few of my weaknesses because he is legit. He is legit. He's probably,
0: yeah, that's why he'd be in my team, not yeah, yours. He
1: is legit. <laughs> he is legitimately quick which I sort of, you know, I mean, he's done Kona. So um, anyway, this isn't, the, this isn't the Dan McPherson podcast. This is the Samantha <laughs> and Mark. Yeah. And Mark, more jackets on the, on the way? Yeah, man.
2: I'm about to do a pretty hard sprint on, uh, on Kill Capture. So we'll be ramping up the male production and the female one is finally about to get designed. So well, the Juliet, you. I've got the designer queued up for that and I'll get it prototyped in New York and, and roll that out probably early next year.
1: And I'm thinking that there's probably going to be an invite for you, mate, to um to make a guest appearance on the first Matt Ricks movie, The Fighting Season. Oh, when's it when's it coming out? I don't know. We're still we're still try- <laughs> <I'm> still <laughs> trying to work that out. It's it's a lot harder than I thought. All this sort um, of uh, it
2: must be. And you mentioned there was another novel coming out.
1: Yeah, so I'm working on a third. So the trilogy. But um, yeah, it's I'm trying to come up with some really good storylines at the moment that. But don't give away any national secrets, but it's difficult. <laughs> it's it's always tricky. Yeah. Well, Mark and Sam, on want to thank you guys for being on the Warrior You podcast. Mark for the second time, Sam, your first time, but I'm sure you'll be back. We've got, uh, let me think, we've got season two coming up. So mm-hmm. need to get you guys in there for season two.
0: We'd be delighted. And thanks for you know, creating some space for us. It's nice to be able to, share the airwaves with my delightful side-kicking husband.
2: uh, We look forward to moving back to Perth really
1: soon. Oh, you're coming to Perth? Oh, mate, I'm keen to get some Perth weather in for sure. Yeah, no, I'd love to see you guys. All right. Hey, thanks very much. Have a great rest of your day. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward, Sam, to the invite.
0: Absolutely.
1: Where can people find out more about you two?
0: We both have individual websites that I think is a great, platform to go to other platforms so mine's samantagash.com but if you want to reach out to me probably the best spot is either via instagram if you use that platform or linkedin
2: yeah and same with me markwales.com.au and i'm on uh instagram facebook and linkedin
1: great thanks for being on the show guys righto thanks for listening gang if you'd like to find out about our parent company and the leadership and resilience training and workshops that they offer, please head to the Hindsight Leadership website, www.hindsightleadership.com. Hindsight Leadership, all one word. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, and remember, Every Dollar Helps, you can do that through the podcast website at www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. There's a donation tab at the bottom of the main page and all donations are really appreciated. They keep the show on the road. And if you're interested in the Warrior U military preparation course, whether that's just a physical training component or the whole cultural training package, this can also be found through the podcast website, www.podcast.warrioru.com.au Righto. Thanks for listening and live a life worth living.